Welcome to the Sierra Youth Podcast, a podcast where we hold conversations about creating a healthy planet for healthy communities. We're here to learn about all things related to intersectional environmental justice from the perspective of youths. Our hosts are Brenna, Michaela, Jessica, Jackie, and me, Emily. I'm here today to chat about the larger implications of recreation and tenure has on our landscape. Joining me today are Wayne McCrory, registered professional biologist with 40 years of bear research and conservation experience. Wayne grew up in a mining family in New Denver in the 1950s. KL is a settler of Finno-Ugric heritage, working as a projects and campaign coordinator for the autonomous Synaxt. And Nikki is a spokesperson for the Wild Connection, lives off-grid in the West Kootenays, and is an avid outdoor person and naturalist who deeply values wildlife and wild spaces. As someone who grew up in the West Kootenays myself, an area with the highest rate of tenure in BC, I believe that it is our responsibility to look at how our hobbies and lifestyle affect our landscape and those who rely on it. As of March 1st, 2021, there were 65 proposals awaiting decision in the Kootenai Boundary region that were of recreational tenure. In the same region, nestled between two small towns, New Denver and Caslow, are some of my favorite wild places. And currently they are under threat of yet another resort proposal. The Zincton proposal boasts itself as the Tesla of ski resorts, but the proposal has left many locals scratching their heads and wondering how this proposal has continued to move through the government approval process. A couple quick definitions before we get started so that everyone can follow along and know what we're talking about. When I say tenure, tenure is described as the conditions under which land can be occupied, held, or managed, and by whom and for how long. Any activities on Crown land require a tenure to be obtained, and that includes anything from logging to ski resorts to commercial fishing. And in BC, the provinces consists of 94% Crown land. So in BC, a Land Act tenure is required for recreational operators to operate on provincial crown land if activities involve payment received or promised from residents and non-residents of the province it includes anything from ski resorts to even small human-powered guiding outfits so now without further ado i would like to welcome wayne kl and nikki and i would ask that you each start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do i've lived here since 1948 and i have deep roots in the valley and connected with the autonomous Sinaiics about 30 years ago when they first showed up in the valley to uh, start uh, reclaiming their traditional territory and have worked with them uh, on saving the Piconila or White Grizzly Wilderness known as Goat Range Park and uh, that sort of thing. So this is my base. This is my home. And when I went to University of British Columbia back in the early 1960s, there was just mining, logging, and uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, environmental stuff. The word wasn't even invented. And one year I came home and I discovered that one of my favorite areas near Goat Range Park was going to be logged by this big logging company from New York. And I went, oh, my God, what's happening to our valley? So that got me aware that uh, you can't just sit back and pursue your career without speaking up and that sort of thing. And one thing led to another. And my roots are here. My consulting work is here. I'm a director of the Valhalla Wilderness Society, the Valhalla Foundation for Ecology, the Spirit Bear Foundation, and the Get Bear Smart Society. So... Part of my life has been dedicated to doing good conservation science, um, some of it peer-reviewed. The other 
hat, which is an ethical one, is dedicated to protecting wildlife and saving wilderness for wildlife, and also uh, recognizing Aboriginal rights and titles and working with different First Nations on different inventories and helping them with their programs to restore their land. So this particular area is dear to my heart. A lot of our regulatory government policies and stuff are, you know, there's a lot of pushback now. And we need to, as we did with Jumbo, push back and stop this because uh, it's going to be disastrous for grizzly bears. Um, we're just finishing a review of the, the impact on Western toad populations. Um, we did an extensive review of Mr. Harley's claims that he's going to clean up all this old mining. And... Uh, in talking to the government regulatory experts on this, they said uh, whatever he does would probably cause a lot more damage than just leaving it. And we can yeah. get into that a little uh, bit more later. Um, okay. I have some questions right. kind of directed towards that. Um, right. Nikki, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So Nikki Blackshaw, as you mentioned, I'm the spokesperson for the Wild Connection. And in terms of the Wild Connection, I do like to refer to myself as the new kid on the block, meaning that my husband and I moved here about five and a half years ago. So we're relatively new to the area in terms of most everyone else around here who has been here for generations or decades. And we moved here specifically because of the peace and the quiet and the remote and wild wilderness surrounding these communities. Um, if we wanted to move to a resort community, we would have done that. And also in my past, I did work for the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative for a number of years. And before moving to BC, I spent a number of years doing wildlife rehabilitation in Alberta. So I do have a passion for the wildlife and the wild places here. And as you mentioned in my intro also, I am an avid, avid outdoors person. So this area means a lot to me. And like I said, we moved here because of all of the values it currently holds at present. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, you're in good company with being an avid outdoors person here. KL, do you want to take the stage next? I'm a lifelong environmental and social justice activist. Um, I come from a family of refugees. So the whole question of home and honoring home is uh, very near and dear to my heart. Um, I moved to this area over 30 years ago in order to put my roots down. And that entailed um, initiating relationship with the people of this land who are the Sinaiqst, but also with the land itself. And um, I have spent the last 30 plus years developing that relationship. I'm also what you could call an avid outdoors person, um, spending my time both harvesting from the land, but also being on the land, witnessing the land uh, and creating connection. Um, very fond of forests and water and mountains and uh, this area here, I now live in New Denver. Uh, I lived in, on a land co-op for over 25 years. Um, and during my time at the Ma Land Co-op, I was also intensively involved in the Jumbo Wild Campaign, uh, which addressed the Jumbo Glacier Resort that was proposed for the Purcell Mountains. And so uh, the whole issue around recreational tenures and the impacts of recreation are something that I've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about. Uh, I'm also a writer and a publisher, and now I work with the Autonomous Sinai, coordinating campaigns and projects, and the 
the campaign to rewild Pikilauna, which is the White Grizzly area, uh, which includes the Zincton Resort proposal, is uh, a current active campaign of ours. And I can talk about that more later. Thank you all so much for being here. It's really great to hear from you all and you all have different backgrounds and different things to bring to this conversation. So it's really great to have you all here. Um, KL, we have listeners from across the country um, and even a few out of the country. Um, so do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about who the autonomous cynics are and uh, some of the background around the cynics and how the autonomous cynics came to be? The cynics are the indigenous people of the uh, headwaters of the Columbia River, which is in what's southeast, what's now called as British Columbia. And of course, they have lived here since time immemorial with very, uh, not just intricate ties to the land, um, Indigenous people, as Indigenous people, they were of the land, part of it, uh, not separate, um, and had laws and practices that uh, sustained themselves and this land for many, 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 many generations. In uh, the process of contact and settlement and mining that came to this area, the Sinaiks were of course, uh, subject to a lot of violence and also displacement. When it came time to have reserves, they did not get reserves. And this cannot be uh, understated as a source of, you know, the diaspora of Sinaiks driving them out of their traditional territory, which is called the Tumhulao. And in because of that situation in 1956, when the last registered person in the Arrow Lakes band um, died, the Sinaiks were declared extinct under the Indian Act, even though they continue to exist and, and they are recognized as a tribal group in the U.S. So the Sinaiks work under a very um, difficult situation in that they have no recognition, no governmental recognition whatsoever as a First Nation of Canada. And uh, this is the context in which they have come since about 1989 to reclaim the land of their ancestors and to reassume their responsibilities to this land, which includes the, the land and the water and all of the beings that are here sharing this space with us. So the autonomous Sinaiks are a group that are not affiliated with any colonial governmental organization, not a band council or anything of that nature. And uh, they work to uphold the laws of Poplakan and Smamim, um, which cover the responsibilities that people have to the land. And as far as the Zincton proposal goes, um, Nikki, do you mind telling us about who this project is intended for, who is against it, and who the potential stakeholders in this project or proposal are? Sure. So the Zincton proposal is scheduled potentially to take place in between the two communities of New Denver and Caswell so along the Highway 31A corridor. And David Harley, who is the proponent, is asking for a 60-year tenure, and that's for 5,500 acres of public land. And it's very important to note that it's not just about public land tenure. He owns 1,000 acres of land adjacent to the tenure he's looking for. So the tenure itself is basically going to be making it very appealing to anyone who potentially wants to buy a house on his private land because you're going to have access to um, hiking trails, mountain biking trails. Um, I think it's six lists now that the proposal's up to. There's also going to be a lodge built on the Crown land. And it's also interesting to note that with his proposed um, village, 
he wants to create his own municipality there. So that has raised a lot of red flags for a lot of people, given what we just went through in this region with the Jumbo Resort. Um, also with the village, it's going to be attracting between 1,200 to 1,700 visitors a day. So to put that into perspective, the nearest community, which is New Denver, eight kilometers away, has a population of 500 people. So we're looking at three times the population every day coming to this area for recreation. So at present, it's our understanding that David Harley continues to be the sole um, proponent for this application. And in terms of the stakeholders, I'm going to, instead of saying who the stakeholders are for Zinkton, I'm actually going to answer that with um, who I consider to be the more important stakeholders. And I think the biggest stakeholder is Mother Nature herself. Um, we should be really concerned about the biodiversity and ecosystem collapse in this corridor. We should be looking to mitigate the effects of climate change for other stakeholders, which include the wildlife and the residents in the communities of these areas. There's a lot of things at stake for a lot of people in the area and the wildlife, which I'm sure Wayne is going to address shortly here. But again, this um, 5,500 hectares of public land that Mr. Harley wants for his tenure does sit smack in the middle of a wildlife connectivity corridor between the Goat Range Provincial Park and um, Coconut Glacier Park. So it is really critical land that already is being besieged by other existing commercial recreation tenures and other um, resource extraction interests in the area. So the wild connection in particular, what we're looking for is to press pause on these commercial recreation tenures so that the government can finally do some long overdue land use planning for this region because it's in critical need. So Zinkin was the catalyst for the wild connection coming together, but um, you're going to hear from KL and Wayne also, it's a really big issue in a really critical area here. So the proposal um, lists a number of benefits to the region, including cleaning up after mines that were in the area in the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, increasing jobs in the area and boosting tourism in the area in general. Um, what do you, and this is an open question, what do you think about these listed benefits in the proposal? These are similar to the listed benefits of um, things like the Jumbo Glacier Resort uh, that, that we fought over 25 years to stop. Those are colonial benefits. Those are benefits in a very different paradigm than the paradigm that is going to restore nature and humans to a proper place of balance. Uh, there are lots of jobs around here. There are lots of tourists here and they come here specifically because of the kind of nature experience they can have, a very direct contact with the land and the water. And so those people are still coming and those people will continue to come. They might stop coming 
if uh, there's a resort of this magnitude in such a small place. The other issue too is that those jobs, those are service industry jobs, and you know we know what those pay, um, and we also know that the price of housing is going up in New Denver. There's going to be a lot of speculation um, beyond what's already happening, and where will people with minimum wage jobs be able to live. Um, already, there's an incredible housing shortage here. Um, this will impact the community and the people who actually live here in quite a profound way. So the, the benefits, those kinds of benefits cannot outweigh or mitigate the incredible damage that will be done to this land and all of the species that rely on it. We keep talking about this area as a connectivity corridor. Yeah, it does connect to provincial parks that are essential refugia for wildlife, but the area in itself, um, as biologists have said, have got some of the most amazing food source huckleberry patches in the entire region. And so the land has uh, a lot of different ecosystems. There's alpine, subalpine, there's wetlands, there's old growth. There's a whole range of um, ecosystems there that need protecting. Um, they are the source of clean water. So these are the values that autonomous Sinaiks to uphold are things like water and space and safety and uh, ability to thrive for all species, not just humans. So the, the, the benefits offered on the other side cannot possibly even meet those. You know, he keeps saying that this is going to be, you know, the Tesla, the, you know, carbon neutral. Tell me how people are going to get here. New Denver is far from all kinds of places. People are going to fly. Isn't it time we looked at, you know, the impacts of our tourist travel on the environment. You, you can't possibly claim this, a, a resort like this is, is carbon neutral. It's just ridiculous. No matter how many electric buses you propose to run from New Denver up there, people have to get to New Denver first. And if you're talking about, you know, up to 1400 visitors a day, that's a lot of vehicles. That's a lot of planes. That's a lot of people moving around. Yeah, we don't, we don't need the jobs. I've seen so many promoters come to the valley. Uh, we had a smelter proposed above New Denver that, like Harley, was going to clean up all the mines. They were going to put this smelter right above the village on uh, some nice farmland, and we were going to all get permanent employment, and everybody would live happy ever after. Well, you know, when you look at the kind of jobs of working by a hot blast furnace and cleaning up waste and the false claim there's going to be no pollution, you know, who needed it? There's lots of opportunities here that we need to capitalize on. We need to use, as the government has been telling us for 30 years, better use of our timber resources that leave the valley. We need value-added jobs. They're sitting right in front of us, and the government are do doing nothing. So we, we don't need another pie-in-the-sky big promise that's going to come in and cause a lot of uh, social uh, problems, as has been proven with other cities like Revelstoke, where there's a big ski resort that's going to have all these benefits. There's a lot of negative benefits that impact the community, and this community will never be the same. There's a lot of low-income people who are living here with health conditions or aging conditions, and they manage to survive in the local economy and with the low housing and with the help of good citizens, but that'll all be gone if this goes ahead. We don't need those jobs. A lot of the people moving here, including myself and, and others, uh, with uh, the beauty of the internet, 
we work from home. There's a whole trend now with COVID when people were told to go home, work from home. They don't want to go back to the office. We can all work from home. And there's all kinds of other opportunities here in that direction. And when we bring in money into the community, I employ a local person helping run my sustainable bandsaw mill. I am, we employ people doing wildlife studies through the Valhalla Society, toad studies. Um, it's all here. We don't need it. I think that brings a, a, a focus on the whole issue of how many eggs do we want to put in the recreation basket? You know, ultimately, push comes to shove in terms of climate change. And if, in fact, the predictions of some of the climate scientists that there will be no forest left south of Revelstoke by 2050 come to fruition, we're going to be needing to look at things like how do we feed ourselves? You know, sustainable agriculture, um, you know, value added community based import substitution issues like these. These are the places alternative energy. These are the places we need to be investing our time and energy for the future. Uh, we need to be thinking about the seven generations to come, not just short term profit and gain. That kind of leads me into my next question, um, which is directed to you, Wayne. Um, so the West Kootenai, as of March 1st, 2021, has 199 adventure tours in 10 years, which cover around 2.5 million hectares. And these numbers were taken from a Mountain Culture magazine article. What are some of the ecological impacts of having so much land um, use going to recreational tenure? And what kind of stress would that at Zinkton Proposal Resort include in those stressors? Well, I've been doing cumulative effects environmental impact uh, studies for the last 40 years. Right now, the backcountry, including our parks, is being overrun by recreation tenures. A little bit here, a little bit there, provided there's adequate environmental review and guidelines and restrictions on keeping them to what they promise they're going to do is fine and some monitoring, but things are totally out of control. And the Zincton Corridor is already over-tenured. I don't know how many letter, letters I've written on this uh, phony public input process by Front Counter BC, where they ask for your input. You do all this professional review, give your input, and they just carry on. Like it, it, These impacts of heli skiing on mountain goats and mountain caribou don't exist, or there's not cumulative effects from mountain biking and hiking and poor grizzly habitat. All of the science is there. Uh, it's all available to the government agencies, to the politicians, and to the Mountain Resource Branch and Front Counter BC, and yet they're, they're back in the dark ages of resource and recreation management. And it's all going to come back to uh, bite us big time if we don't stop it, and that's why Zincton is where a lot of us are drawing the line in the sand. Even though we've um, opposed a lot of the other even smaller mom-and-pop tenures because of cumulative effects, they've all been approved. And this is just going to be the frosting on the cake. You know, you won't have grizzly bears there 20 years from now. So it's to me, it's a ecological crime. It's a crime against nature now. So even though I agree, you know, people should get out and recreate. It's healthy. I've always supported that. I'm uh, trained uh, First Nations people on the coast to become bear viewing guides. I work with First Nations, set up commercial bear viewing programs. But those are all done um, with careful environmental review and, and guidelines to minimize any effects on bears. 
that's not happening here in the Kootenays. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think when you look at the map, there's really not a lot of places left for wildlife to go at this point. And that kind of leads me to my other question um, about the environmental impacts of this proposal. Um, so the proposal claims to clean up after some of the mines that were in the area. And for folks who aren't familiar with this area, a lot of settlers came to this area because of the potential for mining back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Wayne, wouldn't cleaning up some of those mine impacts benefit the environment? Can you speak to that a bit? Um, that's a very complex subject, and myself and my colleagues at Valhalla Society have researched that. Mr. Harley's proposal is not well thought out. Uh, he hasn't done any homework. He hasn't hired geotechnical people, mining engineers, to look at the actual degree of toxicology. The Cascade Environmental Report that he had done does identify um, lead, zinc, and cadmium uh, levels uh, in the water sheds and streams in the area that could be you know, don't meet uh, drinking water standards. And yet uh, Mr. Harley's proposing to take water out of Cane Creek, which has some of those uh, metal con so-called contaminants in it. It gets real interesting um, when you go up Cane Creek on the west side, for example, where the Cascade study found areas above the old mines have unacceptable levels to human uh, consumption from those same contaminants because even before mining, this, you're talking about body rich in silver, lead, and zinc um, all over the place. With uh, before mining, some of those uh, minerals leaching into the natural system to begin with. So we come along uh, with the big silver rush, and uh, one year we took out here more silver than all in all of Canada, for example. When I grew up in the 1950s, I used to hitchhike out to Baron Fish Lake with the miners when the Zincton Mill was running. The Seton Creek and Carpenter Creek ran great with tailings out in the Slocan Lake. That was 70 years ago since the mine closed down. A mining company came in and cleaned up a lot of the tailings and ran them through another mill. And then the beavers came in and now you look at this place that used to be a uh, a wasteland and there's moose, there's grizzly bears, there's toads. Now, it's not to say that there are, isn't a certain level of um, these metals still in the stream, but they don't appear to be um, in excess of what we've one research study showed impacts western toads we have not found one uh, deformed toad in our seven years of study and that includes remote camera data where we have them cross and the wooden bridge under the highway of eleven thousand toads one of our biologists looked at each toad picture to document things and None of those were deformed. If, if the contaminants were so high, you would see deformed animals running around. You would have the fish and wildlife saying, don't eat the deer you kill. Don't fish in these creeks. All these creeks are open to fishing. <laughs> so we check with the fisheries biologists in Kootenai Lake to see about um, Mr. Harley's claim about uh, these contaminants go all the way down Castle River through Kootenai Lake, down through the dams, and they're showing up in the backyards of Sinaiics down in the Colville Reservation. The bull trout still 
spawn in healthy numbers in Caslow Creek, all the way up to below the old mill site where I used to work with my dad. So certainly there is some contaminated sites, Retallic Whitewater Deep minus a declared federal site, but uh, these cost millions of dollars to clean up uh, and so on. And most of the mines in Harley's area are what we call from the mining industry gopher holes. There was only one mine there that um, produced uh, ore, but there was never a mine mill. You know, the ore was so high grade, they packed it out on uh, on pack horses and shipped it to the trail smelters. So that's, he's talking about all this huge, the whole area is contaminated and it's not fit for human beings. And he's got to save us from all dying from toxic metals and our kids and all the wildlife. <laughs> You know, it's, uh, there's no basis in fact. There's no basis in metallurgy. There's uh, other than his um, the Cascade study, which didn't raise any big alarm bells. It's all something grabbed out of the sky to try and sell a proposal. This is great thing under 1% for the planet that he's going to use. Um, somebody ran that number that he would use to clean up by the mines metallurgical department and the person they they just laughed he said the the amount he would put towards it is just a joke if you're going to try and clean up the whole area so that was the last yeah. connection that talked to the mining department and yeah they basically said 13 million dollars over 60 years which if you do the math about two hundred thousand dollars and change a year is an absolutely laughable amount if you're going to attempt to try to clean up any mining contaminations. Yeah, that's a really good point. It feels very, um, very much like greenwashing, which um, a lot of our listeners are familiar with. I think that the proposal in general is a bit greenwashy. The big greenwash here is 1% for the planet, which is a great program. The 1% for the planet on the coastal commercial operations supports uh, the First Nations I work with uh, doing research on their bear viewing. That was started by Yvonne Chouinard, who started Patagonia and has given away millions of dollars to environmental groups to save wilderness. He's donated millions to buy up private land for nature preserves in, in Patagonia and Chile in Argentina, um, Mr. Harley has 1% of the planet, <laughs> and it's not a green proposal. As far as I'm concerned, he should do what uh, Jawan Chenard did with Patagonia, donate his land to uh, a land trust and contribute to the protection of the corridor if he's really <laughs> going to be green. But uh, it's all uh, about uh, making money and developing a town site and profiting from big subdivisions and stuff. So because it's coming at a time of First Nations uh, promises of reconciliation, and yet the Sinaiics uh, are largely being ignored here. It's coming at a time when we're in a huge global crisis with climate change and global warming. And so, you know, sooner or later, the, the rubber's going to have to fit the road. And I think this is where we draw the line. Wayne's last point kind of leads me into my next question. KL, you mentioned the rewilding campaign that was brought forth by the autonomous Sinaiks recently. And I know that a part of that campaign encompasses the area where the Zington proposal 
is taking place. Um, can you tell us about the rewilding campaign and why it's important and how you think it's a better alternative than potentially using this area for a recreation tenure? Why give 1% to the planet when you can give 100% to the planet? So the rewilding campaign for Pikilona is for 100% for the planet. Um, it's a uh, Pikilona, white grizzly, is the name of that area because the white grizzly that lives there, it's a subspecies of the grizzly, is extremely rare and it is sacred to the Sinaiq's people. Um, they had a really profound relationship with the white grizzly. It was a spirit animal and one of the last Sinaiq's who were driven out of this area. His name, uh, Alex Christian, his indigenous name was Pikilauna, white grizzly. So there's a lot of really deep cultural significance to that area that I have been pondering. And, I, and I'm thinking the relationship with the grizzly is very important to the Sinaiq's partially because the grizzly is is probably the main animal who shares food source, like the types of foods that people eat, grizzlies eat, right? They, they eat the roots, they eat the plants, they eat the berries, they eat the small game. Like there's so much overlap that what the whole rewilding notion is, it's not about leaving people out. It's taking that whole corridor, which is about 400 square kilometers, and it includes the Zincton proposal, it's about one-tenth of that, and saying, what if we visioned a new way forward where we start being responsible for our footprint on this planet and, and leaving enough space for all of the other species to thrive alongside of us? What if we start making islands of people in a big sea of biodiversity instead of crisscrossing everything with our roads and our inhabitations and our, and our activities? So the whole rewilding um, concept has sort of five pillars. One is starting with um, a rejection of all current tenure applications. There are multiple tenure applications in that area. Um, so just putting a halt to that. Number two, reviewing all of the existing tenures in that area, mining, logging, uh, recreation. There's a whole bunch of other recreation tenures already in existence and saying, are these ecologically sustainable? Are these ecologically responsible? Not about saying, no, you can't do these things, but how are you doing them? Is it is it connected to the land? It's turning that whole area into a traditional um, provisioning, food provisioning area so that people who currently use it both indigenous and settler can continue to use it for berry picking. There's all the people who hunt, who fish. Like there's that is a that is the breadbasket actually of traditional foods in this area. So it's looking at the road and the impacts of the road and starting to pull back the road in some ways, having seasonal closures and then controlled access at other times of years so that you know emergency vehicles can get through, but like the excessive number of motorcycles that go screaming through that area because it's a lovely winding road uh, and don't even stop to look at where they are, that, that kind of thing needs to stop. Uh, we're looking at a cessation of low-level air traffic over the area so that animals can feel safe from getting buzzed by helicopters continually. And we're looking at what, what are the reasonable kinds of restoration that are really required there. So it's turning that whole area back to a balance between humans and wilderness and, and leaving enough space for all other species. In the face of climate change, this is necessary. You know, we need to pull back. We need to pull back if we want our connection to life to persist. That's that's what it's come down to. We can't, as one species, go it alone. <laughs> we need all the other species. We need. We are all the other species, and um, our our animal relatives 
are asking us to step up for them. And that's what this campaign is about. It's stepping up for the grizzly, it's stepping up for the wolverine, it's stepping up for the toads, for the caribou, the moose, the beaver, the butterflies, the plants, the old growth, everybody, all the ungulates. Um, yeah, it's time. I think that's such a beautiful way of putting it. And I think that rewilding is such a great use of wording and just, yeah, encompasses you know, that feeling that I think we've probably all had when we step out in nature and yeah, experience those things that you just described. Um, and I think that this conversation, of course, kind of just, just scratches the surface of all the convoluted issues, but where can people go to learn more and how can people help if they're interested in helping out with this issue? So people can go to the wildconnection.ca. That's our website. And it's full of information about who the Wild Connection is, about the current threats to the area. There's information there under the Take Action tab for people to write letters to their MLAs. And we also have our Press Pause Let's Plan petition that's currently open, which has over 2,700 signatures from locals and people across the region who are saying no to Zinkin. So people can visit the Wild Connection for free to sign the petition. And from the autonomous Sinaiics perspective, uh, there will be information on our new website that's going to go live sometime this month, sinaiics.org. Uh, but in the meanwhile, there is also the bloodoflifecollective.org, which is a settler Sinaiics uh, activist collaborative. And we are raising money for the Pikilauna campaign. If you go to uh, Ways to Give, you'll see that it's the featured campaign. There's people should, should engage. They should read up. They should write. Um, and I really encourage people to mention that this is unceded Sinaiq's land uh, and that there are jurisdictional issues here. The Mountain Resorts Branch and Zington Farms Inc. The proponent are not in conversation with us. They have refused to engage. And uh, that doesn't change anything about how we stand up for the land that um, we are responsible for. But um, certainly the government needs to be reminded that under the UN Declaration of Rights on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that they don't get to pick who the Indigenous people are. Uh, the Sinaiqs have been here for 10,000 years and they will persist and they will persist in upholding the traditional laws of this land, regardless of uh, whether we are formally consulted in these pseudo public consultation processes and First Nations consultation processes or not. So I encourage people to stand up for the so-called extinct people of this land, as well as the uh, quickly going extinct animal relatives of ours. That's wonderful. Thank you both so much. Um, I appreciate you both taking your time to um, talk to us today. I'll be in touch. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sierra Youth Podcast. For more information on sustainable recreation, stay tuned for our next episode when we will be continuing the conversation about how human recreation can have an impact and how we can look at recreation and manage it in a sustainable way. This episode of the Sierra Youth Podcast was produced by Aviva Lassard, our editor, Justine Van Dyke, graphic design by Zaria Levy, Social media by Abby Gagon. The rest of the team includes Brenna Kagawa Vicentin, Emily Markham, 
Jackie Layton, Jessica Cloutier, Kayla Yanni, and Sean Trainer. We are the youth chapter of the Sierra Club of Canada, a national and grassroots nonprofit dedicated to protecting our environment, our communities, and our futures. We are a community-powered show and need your direct support to continue empowering young people to learn more about topics often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value our conversations and the guests we learn from, you can support us on Patreon. You can follow the link in our show notes to contribute. And just saying, there might be a few show extras for our Patreons. Please subscribe to our feed and leave a review. It really helps. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. See you next time.